going on this summer, as Tony said, we want the summer to be an end ramp for, for, for the mission that God has us on here at the Brook. And uh, one of those things that we have going on that we didn't mention in the, in the announcements is in regards to, to some of our youth. How many, how, many, how many youth do we have in here? Okay, I see you. Man, everybody's quiet today. We're going to try to change that a little bit in a second. But the, we, some of our youth are part of this ministry called God's Image. God's Image is a, is a performing arts ministry. They go around uh, just sharing the gospel through, through things like dance, rap. And uh, on June 11th, they're going to be doing a, a fundraiser here in our building and they're going to be uh, selling baked goods and different food items. And it's going to go toward, toward the ministry and the different things that they have going on. Uh, a lot of the, the students part of this ministry actually are part of the brook. Uh, so, so please come out and support them. It will be a great opportunity to, 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 to really flesh out um, the mission that God has them on. So, so let's support them as a church family. So before we get started, let's start with a, with a word of prayer. And get right into it. Father God, we just thank you for, for this day that you've given us. Lord, the psalmist says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Father God, we, we come to you right now. And we, we come to you with this posture, Father, to bless your name, to worship you, Father God. And I just pray that as we do that, God, that you would remind us of your goodness in our lives, of your mercy in our lives. Father, and we pray that you would continue to, to do something among us even as we continue to worship through the hearing of your word. Father God, in and of myself, Lord, I have nothing to offer, God. Lord, but your word does. So, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak to our hearts, challenge our hearts, and move us to obedience, to the praise and honor of Jesus, the Christ, who gave himself up for us. So, Lord, we commit this time to you. Lord, give us clean hands, attentive hearts. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Rejection. That's a word that you probably hear often. Rejection is a feature of life that most of us can't get away from. Everything minuscule to that, that heyday in school, maybe you're in school now, and if you're, you're a guy and you want to you know, ask a girl out to prom or to homecoming, that could be a gut-wrenching thing because you don't know what the outcome might be. And many of us in here today, I'm assuming, have been rejected at homecoming. I could just tell. I'm just playing. That was, that was a joke. I never went to homecoming, so you can't get me back on that. But rejection can, can be a minuscule thing at that level, but rejection can also be painful when it comes to your, your spouse, in their family, when they don't accept you for who you are. That's painful. Rejection is a feature of life that could plague us when you're a student in school and you're getting bullied because you don't follow the trends of the crowd. 
can be scary to go to school. Many students here today face that rejection and perhaps even deal with some bullying. Rejection is a feature of life that no matter what stage you're in, you can't get away from. Maybe you're at work and your coworkers, they reject you because of your faith in Jesus. They don't invite you to the work parties. They don't invite you over their house for the summer barbecue just because you choose to live differently for the sake of Jesus. It's rejection. It's hostility. When we think about rejection, there's a man that comes to mind, and his name is Muhammad Ali. Many of you know that Muhammad Ali, on Friday, he passed away. He died. He struggled with Parkinson's for his whole life. But he was arguably the most intelligent boxer in terms of of the, the, the science of boxing and arguably the best boxer ever to fight, to put the gloves on. And Muhammad Ali, he talks about an instance in 1960. He was a hotshot from Louisville, Kentucky. And he went over to Rome, Italy in 1960 to compete for the, for the gold medal. This is before he became a professional. He goes to Rome, Italy. He wins the gold medal. If you see an interview where he talks about this, he talks about how when he was winning the gold medal, he was hearing the Star Spangled Banner, and he felt this sense of pride. Like, man, I'm winning this medal for my country. Man, what honor that is. And then he comes back home to Louisville. And one day he's hanging out with one of his friends. And he goes to a restaurant. And at that time in America, which this is shameful, things were segregated by the color of your skin. He was the Olympic gold medalist. He had just won. And he's sitting at this restaurant, and the owner tells him to leave. Now, ruckus just begins, because if you know anything about Muhammad Ali or Cassius Clay, you know that he was no punk with his hands or with his words. And long story short, that instance changed the course of his life. And he fought with that on his back, with that chip on his shoulder, knowing that he can be the champion of the world in boxing and still come back home and not be accepted. Rejection. doesn't matter who you are. You can be financially successful. You can be a celebrity. Or you can be somebody who... It's not very known, and you still deal with it. And the question for us today is, how do you deal with rejection? How do you deal with rejection from those who are closest to you? And similar to Muhammad Ali going back to his hometown of Louisville and being rejected for who he was, for the content of, of his skin, Jesus sympathizes with that because one day Jesus went back home. And we find ourselves today in Mark 
chapter 6. So if you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, if you don't own a Bible, you can use the, the one in the pew in front of you. If you don't own it, you can, you can take it, consider it a gift from us here at the brook. And that's on page 841 in the Pew Bible. Mark chapter 6, and we're going to begin at verse 1. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. And as we turn there, Mark is documenting the life and body of Christ as he fulfilled his mission here on earth, physically among people. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. It says, He went away from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. So the story in Mark picks up with Jesus on a mission. Up until this point, Jesus had been doing miraculous signs in this region in Israel called Galilee, specifically off the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He was healing the sick. He was making people who, who, who had diseases be free from them. He was casting out demons, people who were possessed by demons, and he was also preaching to people, telling them to repent, to turn away from their sinful lifestyle, to turn away from things that dishonor God and turn to God. But here it says he went away, meaning he left the shores of Galilee, and then it says he came to his hometown. And as we know from different different books in the Bible, his hometown was a place called Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was kind of gully. As a matter of fact, one of his disciples, when they, when they called Jesus, when, or when Jesus called him through one of his other disciples, his name was Nathaniel, he literally asked the, his friend, he said, man, could anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip, his friend, told him, man, we found the Messiah, the Savior, the Savior of the world, and he's from Nazareth, believe it or not. And Nathaniel's just like, man, are you sure about that? From Nazareth? Man, I don't know if anything good could come out of there. And Nathaniel followed Jesus. And here Jesus goes back to Nazareth, and he goes back with people like Nathaniel, who wondered, like, man, could, could anything that, mean, that means somebody or any, anybody who does something of value come from that place? And the word tells us that his disciples followed him. Now just imagine Jesus coming from the seas of Galilee back to his hometown. Jesus walking into Nazareth and a, and a dude's on a donkey. He's like, yo, Jesus, where you been, man? Like, man, I heard you're doing some wonderful works, man. And Jesus is like, yeah, man, I'll talk to you later. I imagine Jesus walking with his disciples and just showing them around. I'm using my sanctified imagination. It says he went to his hometown. I could imagine him telling, man, like I remember I used to play basketball, whatever the sport was, right over there. I used to play with a basket. It was cool. I imagine Jesus knocking on the door of his house and surprising his mom. 
And his mom being like, wow, it's so good to see you, his brothers and sisters, just happy to be with him. Here Jesus is with his disciples. And I can just imagine Jesus introducing his disciples to everybody he knew in his neighborhood. And Jesus for sure was a hometown guy, but he, was, he wasn't ordinary. And for sure, the, the, the Bible tells us that people had been hearing what Jesus was doing, how he was healing the sick, how he was preaching with authority. And one day he gets a speaking request from a rabbi. Verse 2, it says, And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Now, see, what you have to know about Jewish culture, Jesus was a Jew, was that for the Jews, they used to meet in these places called synagogues, similar to a place like this. And they would hear from a rabbi or a teacher, and they would hear about the coming savior of the world, that someone was to come to save the world. But if you were to teach in a synagogue, you couldn't just be anybody. So what we know from this text is that Jesus was known, whether through the reports that he was hearing or because of his character. And he was invited to speak on this day. And what ends up happening, and we know this by by the book of Luke, which which gives account to the story, is he says, hey, y'all, we've been waiting for the Savior of the world. And I just want to tell you today, on a Saturday, the Sabbath, that I am the Lord of the Sabbath. As a matter of fact, I'm the Savior of the world. And all the things you see, all the things you've heard, testify to the fact that I am indeed the Messiah. Now you could just imagine the room. There's probably a pause. But then ruckus comes out. Verse 2 again. He says, And many who heard him were astonished. They were amazed. They were like, wow. And people just start asking questions. Where did this man get these things? Then another person says, what is the wisdom given to this man? And another person stands up and says, how are such mighty works done by his hand? And people just start talking over each other. But at this point in their questioning, those are valid questions. Man, where did Jesus, the guy that we grew up with, that used to, used to live on 111th Street in Nazareth, how is he doing all of these things? Those are valid questions. But the next questions undergird their attitude. He continues and says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Jesus was a carpenter growing up. His father was a carpenter. And history tells us that Jesus probably took over the family business at some point. So people knew him as a craftsman, as somebody who worked hard with his hands, who worked by the sweat of his brow. He was a man's man in that sense, a hard worker. And here, people say like, hold up, man. This is Jesus. The carpenter. Like, how is he doing all of these things? 
continue on, and another person says, and are not his sisters here with us? Now, now you got to hear the tone in that. What they're saying is, man, Jesus isn't nothing special. He's one of us. Look at his brothers. They even name him by name. Judas, James. Say, man, that's Mary's son. And then they say, his sisters are with us. Which is to say, like, they're they're one of us. What makes this guy so special? So in the synagogue, tensions are running high. You can just see people asking these questions. I even imagine people saying, blasphemy. How is this person to say he is the savior of the world? That's disrespectful. We've been waiting for years, for 400 years, for God to speak. And you're the savior, Jesus? From Nazareth? The carpenter? You got to be kidding me. But Jesus, being the man that he is, he looks him in the eye. He silences the crowd. And in verse 4, we see what he says. Oh, excuse me, before that, they took offense at him. Verse 4, he says, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor. Jesus begins to confront them, their offense, by using a proverb that they would use in that day. He said, A a, a prophet is without honor. And he says, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Now, what he's saying there is this, that familiarity in terms of prophets, in terms of people who speak on behalf of God in their hometown, they're not accepted. What he's saying there is familiarity breeds contempt. That's why you can't see who I really am. I'm not just Jesus from Nazareth, the carpenter. And then he also gives us the location of where he has no honor. And this is where it gets deep. He says, a prophet is without honor except in his hometown. Okay, that's broad. It gets a little bit more specific. And among his relatives, that's his cousins in them. And then he says, and in his own household. Which is to say that not only people who knew him from the neighborhood were questioning him and his works, his own family were doing the same thing. So you talk about rejection where it hurts. Some of us, we could deal with rejection when it's somebody that we don't really have no relational investment with. But when it's your family, when your family doesn't accept you, that hurts. And Jesus confronts them. So what does Jesus do? I mean, because tensions are high. You can just imagine this synagogue is packed with people because they probably heard about what Jesus was doing throughout their region. In the word of God, in verse 5, it tells us, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. 
Now, you have to contrast this with what had been going on in Mark so far. Jesus was healing people with great faith. There were people who were sick who understood that they needed some healing. And if you were sick in those days, often you would be ostracized from the community completely. You would be segregated. You couldn't be with with the general public. And Jesus was healing these people. And not only that, he was teaching them, proclaiming the good news that he was the savior of the world. If you put your faith in him, that you would be in relationship with God once again. And here, it says that he can do no mighty work. Now, that doesn't say that Jesus couldn't do mighty work. He could do mighty works if he wanted to. We'll see why he didn't in a second. But it says he could not do it, which is to say that he willfully chose not to. He chose not to work except on a few who understood their need of him. He chose not to. He was God in the flesh with all power and authority. He could do whatever he wanted, yet he didn't. And the next verse tells us why. Verse 5. Or verse 6, excuse me. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So Jesus chooses not to work in their midst, except for those who understood their need. And here it tells us that he marveled. The same way that people in other towns were astounded and amazed by the works that he was doing. Now he's amazed at the fact that people in his own hometown who know his character. Who've heard of his works. Who've seen his works because they question that. Don't believe. So why didn't Jesus choose to work the way he did in other towns? Because of their lack of faith in him. And then the text continues and says in verse 6, and he went about among the villages teaching. So Jesus wasted no time with people who just didn't want him. Jesus said, I'm bouncing, I'm out. Disciples, let's, let's be gone. Let's get some mamas cooking real quick, and then we'll leave. And he went among the villages teaching. His disciples with him in verse 7. It's leading to what the purpose of this episode is. He says, and he called the 12 and he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. That's kind of like a big change, right? Jesus is rejected because of people's lack of faith. He chooses not to work because of their lack of faith. And here, he tells his disciples, come on, let's go. I'm going to send you out. He calls them. Then he sends them two by two. And he sends them on a mission. See, you can't go on mission without community. You can't live for Jesus without your church body. That's just not the way it works. If you really want to be on mission, then you got to do it with the people who are on mission in the same way. And we see this in the text. 
Jesus sends them out two by two. It doesn't say one-on-one. Hey, Peter, you get that side. Hey, Nathaniel, you get this side. No, he says, hey, Peter, John, you guys go over here. Nathaniel, Philip, you guys go over here. And you guys hold it down for each other. And then he gives them authority. That's what Jesus does on his mission. He calls us to himself. He gives us a destiny and purpose to make him known. And then he sends us out into the world in community by giving us authority over evil. Giving us power that only comes from him so that people can see who he is. So he sends them out. But then I imagine when he's having this conversation, he's thinking about what had just happened in Nazareth. That's why Mark puts this in here. He's trying to prove a point. He's trying to show us that the disciples too would face rejection. And Jesus prepares them for this. Verse 8, it says, And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. So his first thing is, hey, look, I'm going to send you on mission, but what you need to take is just a staff, which was an, a, a tool of, of guidance when you're traveling. And he says, and don't take nothing. Just take only what's necessary, some sandals, and don't wear but one cloak which was like Jerusalem fashion back in the day. He's saying, like, don't, don't put too many layers on. And the reason why he tells him this is because of the following. In verse 10, he says, And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place, church family say, any place, will not receive you, and they will not listen, say, listen, If they will not listen to you, when you leave, say leave. Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So he tells them, here's your charge. I'm going to send you out because I called you. I'm going to give you some authority, but this is what you need to take for the trip. Nothing. Imagine that type of trip. Take nothing except for some sandals and just wear one cloak. And then he says, if you go into a house in one of those villages where you're to proclaim my name and to take out unclean spirits and they don't receive you in that town, shake off the dust off your feet as a testimony against them and leave. What is he saying there? He's saying this. When you're on mission, you're not to be reliant on anything you have. When you're on mission, you're to be completely dependent on the Lord. One of of the greatest hindrances to your mission and my mission is the things that we have. The things that we possess. And see, the problem is not owning things. We can own things. That's a godly thing, to steward them well. But the problem is when those things own you. And when those things own you is when it hinders your witness for God. So you want to know if you're on mission? Test how much hold the things that you have have over the mission. 
So Jesus is telling them, it's not about you owning things. I want you to be dependent upon me. And in this case, he wants them to trust him that he would hook up the hotel accommodations. He'll give them a place to sleep. But then he says, if these people don't receive you, shake off the dust from your feet. What does that mean in our context? And that day and age, what that meant was just kind of like wipe your hands and say, hey, my job is done. And guess what? The judgment of God is upon you. I did my job. I obeyed my Lord. But the judgment of God is upon you. Now it's between you and the Lord. And then what happens is astounding. Because you see the disciples' faith. And before we read what happens, you have to know this. That the, the disciples followed Jesus because they heard his teaching, understood, man, this man has the words of life. They saw his healing, and they said, I'm going to follow you. They had great faith. So, of course, they're going to obey Jesus on this mission, completely dependent upon him and willing to even say, hey, look, you don't want to accept me and my message and what I do? I'm out of here. They were okay with that because they had faith in Jesus. And what happens next is astounding. Verse 12, he says, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Does that sound familiar? Jesus came on earth telling people, repent. The kingdom of God is here. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from all the things that go against God's ways and turn to me. That's what repentance is. To turn away from your sin and go to God. The one who can heal your brokenness. And now the disciples are saying the very same thing. Except they're not saying come to us. They're saying the power that you see, the things that we say are testament to Jesus. So go to Jesus. We're working on behalf of Jesus. We're not coming on our own. We're coming on behalf of the king of kings. They obey Jesus. And then this story ends with a climactic moment. Verse 13. And they, say they, they. cast out many demons. Say many. many. Many demons and anointed with oil, many who were sick, and healed them. So they obeyed Jesus and they proclaimed and they were functioning off the power of Jesus and people were healed. People came to Jesus. There were people because of their faith and their obedience to Jesus that went with their brokenness to him. And it was all because of the faithful servants of the disciples. So what's going on here? What does the disciples' experience with rejection have to do with the rejection that Jesus was under in his hometown? It's this, that in Nazareth, 
Jesus was, was rejected because of their lack of faith. Here, his disciples weren't afraid to be rejected because of their faith. See, when we look at our own lives, we have to understand what this means for our faith. Because you see two different responses. On the, other, on, on the one hand, you have people who rejected the Savior. On the other hand, you have people who, who walked with the Savior. And this is what it means for us to follow Jesus. It's to believe this. It's called the gospel, the good news. That Jesus' ultimate miracle was his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. To save sinners from the wrath of God. That's what Jesus ultimately came to do. Jesus was doing all these miracles in those days to point to the cross. Because that was the ultimate miracle. And the reason why that was a miracle was because, because we're sinners... God deserves to punish us for all the evil things that we do against him. God deserves to punish us with hell for eternity for breaking his law. From the very little evil thought to every little deed, to murder, to stealing. It doesn't matter. We deserve God's wrath. And Jesus lived a life that you and I couldn't. He never broke God the Father's law, and he died the death that we deserved. And he rose from the grave. And he says, Jeremy, you can have life now. You're not under God's judgment. Believe in me. And that's the miraculous work, the ultimate work that Jesus did. Jesus is not dead. Jesus is on his throne in heaven reigning, even as I preach to you right now, running things, exalted, high and lifted up, involved in our lives. But he started that with his miracle on the cross. And see, you have one of two options. You can be like those in Nazareth, See that and reject it. Or you can be like the disciples who saw that, put their faith in him, and went on mission with him. Now let's take option A. Option A, you reject Jesus. You make $100,000. You get a nice career. And at the end of the day, you realize that it means nothing. That's option A. Option B. You can be completely dependent on God because you have your faith in Jesus. You live unashamed for the gospel. He takes care of you. And you have eternal life with him forever because of your faith. And not only that, when you're here on earth, God gives you authority because of his calling on your life to be in community and to be on mission with him, to make him known and do some powerful things. There's no, there's no middle ground. It's either option A or option B. It's either option Nazareth or option disciples. You have to choose one. 
You can't just look at the miracle of the, of the cross and say, all right, you know, I'll take a little bit of this, and I, you take a little bit of that, and then I'm good. That's not the way Jesus works. See, Jesus was known for his good character. He was a carpenter. I mean, that's what they knew. Carpenters in that day, they, they, they were well known. They were the guy that they would call, like, hey, can, can, can uh, you help this guy fix his wagon? Because they were just handy in every single way. And that's how people knew him. But Jesus is being questioned for his character. So for us, we have the opportunity to follow Jesus, who, who isn't just a man, but who was God in the flesh and who worked on our behalf have a destiny and purpose one that we don't deserve by the way we deserve the wrath of God so if you follow Jesus if you come to Jesus if you place your faith in Jesus spoiler alert you will face rejection You will face rejection for your faith. And often it'll come from people who you think is most closest to you. So what do we do about that? I mean, because we want to follow Jesus and we don't want to act like rejection doesn't hurt. Rejection hurts. Especially when it comes from somebody you love. Rejection hurts when somebody tells you, like, man, I can't stand you no more. You're going to that, that church over there on Barry and Oak Park. Man, those people are weird. They like to sing some, some weird songs. And this person's talking about they're not going to be living with their boyfriend and girlfriend no more. I'm not going to be doing all of this. Man, I don't, know, I, I don't know what's up with this person. That's easy when it's somebody you don't know. It's harder when it's your sister, when somebody you grew up with. And you tell them, like, hey, I'm doing this because I have a new direction in life. I want to love Jesus, and I want to make him known. That's, that's what I want to do. That's the hard part. So how do we deal with rejection? We deal with rejection by focusing on the power at work, not the power of hurt. You deal with rejection by focusing on the power of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the fact that he raised you to life with him and gave you a destiny and a purpose. You focus on that rather than the hurt that people give you, which does bring us to tears. I know there are, there are many in here in this room right now that ever since you've started following Jesus and been part of this church community, you felt nothing but rejection from the people that you love. And the truth is, you can't escape that. It's going to happen. But you have to focus on the power at work, not the power of hurt. But I already know what you're thinking. Well, how do we, how do we focus on the power at work, which is found in the gospel and in the destiny he's given us, and not the power of hurt that does pain us? How do we deal with that? Three different ways that we see from the text. The first way is 
by sharing the gospel without fear of what the outcome might be. Sharing your faith without really worrying about the consequences of what your faith is going to be. And we see that in verse 4 and verse 8. If you read again with me in verse 4, it says, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. See, Jesus confronted the issue with who he was. He says, I'm a prophet, meaning I'm speaking on behalf of God. And I am God in the flesh, the savior of the world. And then in verse 8, what we see is that, or excuse me, verse, verse, verse 13, it says, And they cast out many demons and were anointed with oil, and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So the disciples, they had results to be clear, but Jesus unleashed them knowing that they were going to face rejection. But ultimately, that the outcome wasn't up to them. And that's why he shows us the fruit there. But before that, he also shows us that there's going to be people, there's going to be people who reject you, and this is what you do in that situation. Don't worry about the consequences. You'll see fruit. Don't worry about the consequences. You just do what I've called you to do. So you share the gospel without fear of what the outcome might be. What's the second thing that we do? The second thing that we do in order to focus on the power of the gospel and not the hurt that people give us is we sow into people who realize their need for Jesus. See, Jesus chose. This was a willful choice. Jesus chose to heal those who understood their need of him. And from what we see from this text, Jesus didn't waste time on people who continue to refuse. He invested his time wisely on people who see their need. What does that look like for us? Because the truth is that Oftentimes, the first time you share the gospel with people, people will reject you right off the bat. That doesn't mean you give up up right off the bat. But what I would say is, if you continuously preach the gospel to people and they just continue to refuse and refuse and refuse, you shake the dust off your Air Jordans and you just say, it's between you and the Lord now. And you just love on them through acts of kindness, praying that they would come to Jesus. So how do you focus on the power at work and not the power of hurt? You share the gospel and leave the outcome up to God. You sow time, you sow into people who understand their need of Jesus, which might take one time, might take two times, might even take three times. And then finally, what you do is you set your eyes on the fruit of your faith. See, to to be sure, the disciples had faith in what Jesus would do through them. See, because they were going out on their own this time. Jesus wasn't telling you like, hey, I'm God, but I'm going to be present with all of you guys like at the same time, physically speaking. 
He says, I'm going to send you out with the power of my spirit. And they went into these villages. They had faith in Jesus because they obeyed him. We see that from the text. And their trust led to undeniable fruit. They healed the sick. They proclaimed the gospel. And people repented. And if you look at history, and if you read through the book of Acts, you see how some Joe Schmo fishermen, who were uneducated, by the way, turned the world upside down. Acts 17 says that. How? By the power of God in their faith in Jesus, in their repentance of turning away from evil things and turning to Jesus and trusting him to work through them. So you deal with rejection by focusing on those three things, not on your situation. And that's a hard thing to do. Jesus said, if anyone desires to follow me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. For if anyone desires to save his life, he will lose it. But those who lose it for my name's sake, that's a paradox, will find it. So he says, abandon yourself. Don't live for yourself. Because guess what? Yourself is going to meet the wrath of God. If you live for yourself, you will meet the wrath of God. He says, lose your life, deny yourself, renounce yourself, and come to me. Let's do things my way, and you will find everlasting life with me. And from glory to glory right now, he's giving his his power and authority to tell the world about him. Man, what a wonderful miracle that is to live and serve the one who paid the ultimate price for your sin and for my sin. Something we didn't deserve. So church family, I know many of us are facing rejection. I know that many of you maybe have even contemplated throwing in the towel like, man, is, is this really worth it? Is it worth following Jesus when my dad doesn't get it? Is it worth it? Yes, it's worth it. You have eternal life that starts now with God. See, Muhammad Ali, he faced rejection, and it changed the course of his life forever. When we face rejection because of our faith in Jesus, we get to change the course of history. What we're doing here at this church and through the work of our hands that God has commissioned us through is changing the course of history. Will you follow him? Let's pray. Father God, we come to you at this moment, Lord. God, because we know that rejection is is a real part of our walk with you, Lord. We really do uh, struggle with that. God, I struggle with rejection from my faith, God. 
Lord, and I know that there's people here who are tired. God, who might be discouraged in the mission you've sent us on, Lord. And I just pray, God, that you would renew them, God, by the power of your spirit. Father, I pray that you would ignite the mission again, Lord, even as we prepare to go into the summer, Lord, and that we would stand in the face of fear and rejection and have faith in you, Lord. God, and I just pray for those who don't know you in this room. God, I pray that they would have faith in you and what you did, God, and join you on your mission, Father God. That they would find purpose in you, Lord. God, I just pray that your word would go forth in power and in might. pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. At this moment, uh, the band is going to play a final song. And I'm going to ask prayer counselors to come up. We're going to have prayer counselors in the front and in the back. If you want prayer for maybe some rejection that you've been dealing with, I invite you to come and pray with a brother and sister with your two by two. If if you yourself have realized you've been rejecting Jesus and you want to give your life to him, you want to place your faith in him, come and pray with one of the prayer counselors.